the diagnosis, uh, this um, simultaneous diagnosis treatment is I want to know about this life situation. I want to know. But as soon as some resolution comes, ah, I see, this is now finished. So we don't then go on and do something with that diagnosis because the emergence of it is a point of change. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Our patients really are our best teachers. The lessons aren't detailed on a syllabus, and there's no telling when something surprisingly thought-stopping gets said. Sometimes it comes from that interview portion of the treatment. More often, I find it happens as a kind of offhand remark, but it lands in a way that stops my world, and it makes me reconsider everything. This happened just the other day as a patient of mine was telling me the story of an ex-boss, a brilliant guy, tough, nothing really got by him. And then my patient says, he was smart, but I know him. He's running scared. His mother's always whispering in his ear and saying, you're no good and you'll never be good enough. Why it is that at times I hear the something beyond the something, I got no idea. But I heard it in that moment, and I got it in that moment, that there are voices whispering in our ears. We all got them, and we've had them for a long time. So we think that voice is ours. But you know, maybe it's not. I suspect these voices show up in our work as the resistances our patients have toward being kind to themselves, or the way they're driven by a particular story, belief, or habit. I hadn't thought about it from the perspective that the whisperings from some adult of influence could be setting the pivot that our patients' lives spin on. And it's been an invitation for myself to note, what's my voice in that internal dialogue called thinking? And what might be the voices of parents, teachers, preachers, or fragments from television advertising or the overheard conversations of people that we had imagined were better than us? It's a question that I hold in my mind these days when working with patients who hold a particular adamant view or are looking desperately for me to agree with them. Who is it that has their ear? What are they saying? And how does this relate to what shows up in my patient's mind, body, and spirit? I'm not talking about some kind of psychoanalyzing here. I'm suggesting that there are stories that our patients hold dear. Perhaps they're trying to live up to something or still trying to get away from a judgment that they don't want to believe about themselves, or they're attempting to use medicine in a way that allows them to feel they're right, correct, and intelligent. What is the long-forgotten yet potent influence still being whispered into their ear? The beautiful thing about the medicine that we practice is that we don't need to process the psychological information with them for healing to arise. We just bring it all into the spiral unfoldment of the five phases and the six chi and allow nature and the patient's own inner resources to allow for a wider range of possibility. Of course, there are situations where referral to a good therapist is the responsible thing to do, but do consider that there are other voices in the treatment room. Keep your ears open for them. We're about to get into a conversation on presence non-doing, and the kind of natural action that arises from the experience of stillness. As practitioners, our job is to help, but often 
we are jumping to action through theory, protocol, or something that a friend passed along, which might have its place at times, but knowing what to do from a deeper sense of hearing what a patient needs, that's a different story. The theories and mental maps that we have can be helpful, but what do you do when you're in clinic and the map doesn't match the territory? How do you navigate in those moments? We're going to get into all of this in a moment with Alice Wielden. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat 
whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. You'd be surprised at how much there is to say about non-doing. Word of caution here, this episode is best not listened to if you're driving or operating some kind of heavy machinery or anything that's got sharp blades. Best to settle into a cozy corner with a cup of tea. Here we go. Alice Wielden, welcome to Geological. Thank you. So delighted to have you here. You are a shiatsu practitioner, and I love talking to people on, on what I like to think of as the shiatsu side of the house. You know, we all practice this medicine that's been informed by, uh, you know, the history and the practice in, in East Asia. Except you guys use your hands in a much more profound way than us acupuncturists do. I mean, we use our hands, but you guys, I mean, you have, I I think of you as having this like superpower. Yes, well, maybe we do. (laughs) Yeah, um, I'm I'm shiatsu, but I've veered into seiki, which is a, it's a whole other story. Ooh, tell us about that. In the world of shiatsu. Well, seiki... Was, uh, it's, it's my teacher was uh, Kishi, Kishi Akunobu was his name, and he was a consummate shiatsu practitioner. He studied with the best, with Namikoshi, with, he was uh, Masanaga's right-hand man, and anyone in shiatsu would know those two names, usually. And then he got to the end of his journey with shiatsu, and what he noticed was that he wasn't developing and he felt that his patients weren't really deeply changing their lives. And this was a point of finishing for him because what he was really looking for was deep change and development. He had something of a breakdown at that point. This is about 1980. How old was he? he oh goodness. Well, um, how old was he? He was born in forty-seven. Uh, so whatever that makes him, not not old. And he'd been in the business for a long time and he was very well known. And he'd been in France. He'd been in um, Europe quite a lot by this time. But he had a, a complete, he just stopped doing everything. And he didn't know what to do. He abandoned shiatsu. And he started doing a lot of Shinto practice, uh, cleaning. Shinto is very much about cleaning the soul, polishing the soul. It's a cleaning practice. And he started doing a lot of this. He was in the forests, a lot of quite extreme stuff. He talks about he used to talk about breaking the ice on the, the mountain rivers and plunging himself in in misogi, which is a ritual cleaning, among other things. And um, he had three days of spontaneous movement, which I could talk a bit about later. Just um, it's in the Shinto tradition, this self-cleaning, spontaneous movement. 
It's called Rado in Shinto. And there's three days, three days. He says he was perfectly conscious. He could answer the telephone, but there was just this movement, 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 cleaning. And at the end of those three days, it was just quiet, just peaceful. And um, he took a glass of water and really noticed, he talks about noticing the, how wonderful this glass of water was, just the clarity. And then gradually people started asking him for treatments. Um, and he, he said he didn't want to do shiatsu anymore, but something else emerged. He started doing sessions again, but it was different. And this was what he, he I think he originally called it something like Shinto uh, or shamanic shiatsu and Shinto shiatsu. He played with names, but eventually came up with seiki or seiki soho, which is notoriously difficult to translate. And he'd moved on naturally from shiatsu, but it's still within the shiatsu tradition. So he's been a huge influence. He died um, in 2012, but he's been an enormous influence on certainly European shiatsu and also in the States and Canada. There's been this quiet but, but enormous influence of Kishi over the years. And he's influenced particularly some of the better known teachers in the business. But he, he called his work Seiki, Seiki Soho. You said that Seiki Soho is a little difficult to translate. What's your, how, how would you translate it? Well, I wish I'd looked it up again um, for this. Um, it's guidance and harmony, but uh, Kishi would call it different things, that translate it differently at different times. But really, it's a kind of guidance uh, towards harmony. Guidance towards harmony. Oh, man. That, I, I, you know, I, I hear those words, and I just, I just kind of want to pause for a moment, right? Just, like, let that sink in. Guidance towards harmony. Well, I think a lot of us acupuncturists, we often talk about harmonizing. You know, we talk about helping people to integrate aspects of themselves that maybe they hadn't integrated or, you know, or sometimes help them get rid of something that's in the way. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways we have of helping people. But when I think about guidance towards harmony, oh, that, that just opens up all kinds of possibilities in my mind. Um, so I'd like to hear more from you about like, not just how you guide your patients toward harmony, but like, how do you enter that path yourself? Because if, if you're not as, you know, for us as practitioners, if we're not also on, in some way in touch with how to find that harmony or how to find some kind of balance, then we'd be useless to our patients in helping them find it. Yeah, absolutely. I came across all this stuff when I was 18, actually, um, back in the 80s. And I was, I was actually cooking you were, my... You were kind of a weird kid, weren't you? I was a bit strange, yes. Mm -hmm. I was strange to start with, though. Um, <laughs> strange to start <laughs> I was, I was, I was not very... I wasn't very um, easy child, put it like that. But uh, my father had a big... I'm sure you know about Esalen in the 70s. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, my father went to Esalen in the 70s, and he's a fairly straight guy in many ways. But he, he was over there, he was in California, and... He came back and he wanted to start an English Esalen. So he did. 
He bought a big house in the Devon countryside. I have to say the weather wasn't a patch on California. It's one of the wettest places in England. Uh, but it was, a, it was a beautiful setting. And for some years, he ran that as a sort of residential group centre. And actually, a lot of the teachers were from the States. And so before university, I took a year out and I cooked on courses. And at I came across a number of things which I've stuck with ever since. And one of those was shiatsu with someone called Pauline Sasaki, who you've probably heard of. Uh, she died a few years ago. And it turns out, I only found this out many years later, that shortly before that she'd been Kishi's girlfriend and she became a big name in shiatsu. And so I met her um, at that point and I was very impressed. But it was, and then I trained in shiatsu with the um, shiatsu college where um, our mutual friend Nick Pohl also he was one of the young teachers there at the time so I trained there in the early 90s but there was something there was something I was I was missing I'd um, something that I'd picked up more from Pauline in just that one one or two times I'd met her and I, I did it for a few years and I was, I was interested and I trained to be a teacher and I was, it was interesting, but it wasn't what I was looking for. And then I started to hear about this guy, Kishi. And people were saying, oh, he's a, he's a tricky man. He's a bit dangerous. Just the sort of thing, just the sort of things that would have made me look for him harder. A bit tricky and dangerous. Tricky, a bit tricky. Oh, tricky, tricky. A bit, a bit, oh, he's a bit on the edge. He's a bit, um wild and so i was um hearing about hearing about this guy and uh and then someone just said oh he's in london do you want to come for a treatment with him and i leapt at leapt at this this is about 97 or so and immediately i met him and he sat down beside me i thought this is it this is what i was looking for and so that's how i and then that was it i was um I was hooked and we, I started going on his workshops and they went to Japan and eventually we, we were kind of looking for a project to do together and I suggested writing a book together and he said yes. So this was uh, 2008, 2009, somewhere around here. And uh, so we then worked on the book together and very sadly, uh, the year after that was published, he died. Uh, only He was only 63 but at least we had the book. And the time that you'd spent together. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So you meet this guy. He's in town. Hey, let's go get a treatment with him. You sit down in the room with him and you go, this is it. Yeah. Tell us more about the it. It was, he sat down there and his presence was safe. Yeah. It was more, and it was more than safe. It was expansive and it was solid and it was, it was, he was real. He wasn't trying to do anything to me. He wasn't trying to change me. He was just there. And his touch was the same, this very alive, but very solid, present. He was very present. And that was just an immense relief. It was like I'd been looking for that for a very long time, this this quiet but very powerful presence. 
So, yeah, I think that, that's what hooked me. I mean, it's, it's very hard to describe that. It's such a, it's almost, um, pal it's a palpable, <laughs> it's a good, yeah, perhaps an appropriate word. It's, um, it is appropriate. Yeah, this, but this feeling was a th thick air. Yeah, I mean, we can feel with our hands, you know, I mean, we can feel with our, our sense of touch. And there is another way that we have of sensing you know, beyond with using our proprioception. Yeah. When we're with somebody, right? You can walk into a room and go, hmm, safe. You can walk into a room and go, um, uncomfortable. What's interesting to me is you just described how you felt safe, expansive, you know, there's a sense of safety, expansiveness, and solidity in his presence, and yet he was described as being a bit tricky and wild. Well, he was very real. He was a very real man. I mean, well, back then, I think he, he'd had fairly wild youth. He'd traveled the world. He'd had lots of girlfriends. He was uh, not averse to a night on the tiles. And uh, he was his own man. <laughs> And so I, I think that a lot of people noticed that about, you know, they, they took that about him to be a little bit questionable. But he was, um, so he was interesting in that way. But, 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 but he had a great integrity. I mean, he was ruthless, but he also, he had integrity. He was, a, he was a, quite a mixture. Ruthless and has integrity. You know what? When I grow up, I want to be that kind of practitioner. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, seriously, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, we often have this idea, people that are in the alternative healing arts, Chinese medicine, you know, East Asian medicine, harmony, and we're gentle, and we're nice, and mm -mm. Um, yeah, I, I like that. <laughs> Ruthless and with integrity. It was fun. I'll it bet was it was. It was a lot of fun being with Kishi. I'll bet it was. We laughed a lot, and uh, that was very valuable. He was interested in reality. He said to me once, what I'm really looking for, what I'm really looking for is an adult, a real adult to have a conversation with. This is all I'm looking for. He lived his own, you know, he lived life in the way he wanted to live it, to, to some extent. I mean, he was still traveling around teaching workshops, and spontaneity was a big theme. Well, it sounds like he had some kind of awakening there toward the end, in particular with with, with spontaneity. Yes, this um, 1980, this uh, was definitely a, a powerful awakening for him, and and he used to teach, um, and I still uh, work with something called Katsugan, which is a uh, taken out of the Shinto tradition uh, uh, into Seitai. Uh, perhaps you've come across the same Yes, time. yes, I'm a little, I'm uh, just a tiny bit familiar with it. I have had some uh, Japanese acupuncture teachers. Well, you know, and Bob, our friend Bob Quinn. Well, uh, yes, now that wouldn't be the seitai that I'm talking about. This is a tricky thing with Japanese. Seitai, katsugan is spontaneous, mo it's original movement. Uh, so you, you may have come across uh, things like uh, buki, um, uh, some spontaneous forms of qigong, Mm -hmm. And uh, surrender meditation. It, 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 you can find it here and there, um, this spontaneity. But this is something he was very allied to Seiki, this tapping into natural sensitivity, natural movement. Okay. That sounds like something 
that would be helpful for any kind of a healer. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's tremendous. And, and my suspicion is you don't get there through your head and you don't get there through mental models or theory. Correct. I mean, it's handy to have a few forms. Uh, we all need a few forms to start us out uh, to, to start somewhere. Um, but then it is, uh, it's a practice of surrender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often think about things that I've learned in, in my time doing acupuncture and how, especially in the beginning, I felt like my teachers gave me a kind of scaffolding, something that I could work with a form. I like the way you say it. We get, a, we get some forms. But then our job as practitioners is to be able to no longer need that form, to be able to take the scaffolding down and see, you know, what they'd been pointing to that's there. But we have somehow developed it through our experience. In Psyche, it's actually quite difficult to, to we can't really teach it. You have to demonstrate it because there's no set technique. Um, it's a philosophical position, not a technique or a series of techniques. Mm-hmm. Philosophical position. About what it is to be human, um, about health, about who we are, and what that position, how that manifests in touch and working with people. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Are you familiar with this idea? It's, it's, I think it's a Taoist idea. It's one of these things we talk about in Chinese medicine, that there is heaven, earth, and person, right? There's the influence of heaven, there's the influence of earth, and then in the middle you've got the person who like joins them together. Or as a friend of mine from Taiwan likes to say, there's the grindstone of heaven and the grindstone of earth. And then there's a human being in the middle who uh, creates meaning out of all those opposing forces. Is this the kind of thing you're talking about with this? No, <laughs> I think it's a simple. Yeah, I'm sure it's related. I, I, these things are, but this is, this is about, you know, what, what are we really? What are we if we stop applying meaning, applying those theories to life. And if we try to look at things without those ideas, what are we really? And what is fulfillment? And I think really fulfillment in this way of seeing the world is connection, is good connection. And so how do we 
connect cleanly and well with each other because the source of most of our illness, certainly my way of thinking, uh, Kishi's, is um, broken relationships, is problematic relationships. A source of a vast majority of our ill health. So how do we make that connection again? So there's a bit more to it than that, but fundamentally that, that's what we're doing. How to break down the walls between us. Well, I'm looking at what's happening in the world right now. A lot of talk about that. But I suspect in any moment in any time, you know, you look at some of the great teachers of different traditions and what you're talking about kind of rhymes with, with some of that. Mm. Making connections, taking down the walls, that there's something, something beyond our cognitive models and mental framework. And it's so easy. I know for myself, it's so easy to get caught in those mental models. It's like, oh, yeah, the world works like this. I've got this map of reality. And it's very useful. It helps me navigate a lot. I can get to the airport on, well, no one's going to the airport right now. But, you know, I can get to the airport on time. I can get to the grocery store. I can make an appointment with a patient. We all agree on when we're going to meet. I mean, there's plenty of places where that's useful. But then in that encounter of genuinely trying to be helpful to somebody. Yeah. That's a different kettle of fish. Yeah. What is help? Well, that's a great question. Yeah. What is health? What is help, actually? But what is health is just... Well, those are two good questions. What is health? Yes. Let's let's go with yours. What is help? What is help? Well, this is, is, I mean, personally interesting. How, How... do I feel helped in life? You know, and this was always a big question for me. What is it that helps? And uh, in Seiki, it's really what helps is being really got, really seen just the way you are. And, but to do that, it sounds so simple, but it, is, it seems to be the hardest thing is to really set aside your agendas, your ways of seeing people, and really get them. I mean, this is the practice in itself. It is a practice of uh, service, but in that service, you have to keep cleaning your own agenda and uh, work to recognize this life situation, we say, this particular life situation. And in a way, that, that's, that's the whole of it. That, that's the Seiki session. But we have to find ways to do that and help ourselves do that. Simple, not easy. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I, when I think about the work that I do, which is often vastly surprising because people come in for one reason and then you sit with them for a while and you realize, oh, there's all this other stuff, right? I mean, there's what brings someone in through the door and then there's everything else. And maybe this comes from the medical model of the modern world or maybe this comes from the marketplace of capitalism, the agreements that we have with each other about, oh, you've got this problem and you're bringing it to me so I can, air quotes here, fix it, right? And a lot of us practitioners, we're very happy to think that we have fixed people. And there's a monetary exchange going on. I'm coming to you because I'm suffering. You're going to help me with my suffering. And I'm giving you money, not to mention an hour of my life or however long. And yet what I hear you talking about here, and it's something that I feel like 
has infused my practice. It, it just shows up. There is that question of what is help, and there's that question of what is healing, and, and there's that question of who is doing the work. And, and again, as a practitioner, it's easy to have the stance of, I'm the one who knows, and I'm the one who's doing something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes it's not. Often it's not. And sometimes spontaneously things happen with our patients and we go, where did that come from? So I'd like to, I'd like to dig a little more into this with you about how we create the space for that kind of stuff to spontaneously emerge. Hmm. Well, they've come to you for help. That's, that's a pretty good start. But yes, falling into the medical model is, for me, in what I do, I, I recognize it has its values. But for, in what I do, it's a trap. It's a problem. It's part of the problem, actually, that I can change you. I mean, we know that doesn't work in marriage. So why is it going to work in our relationships with our clients? It's tricky to figure that one out. So... Yeah, I mean, and, and this is also a question that most of my students at some point come with. But people have come to me, they're paying me, and I'm not doing anything. Or I'm moving towards just recognizing the situation. I'm not diagnosing them. I'm not telling them how I'm going to fix them. Yeah, so, so it's a challenge. It's a challenge, and it seems to me sometimes that that is the only challenge, how to drop expectations so I can just see how it is for this person. So I see my task as helping people who come on my workshops to drop their agendas and just look at what is, just what is this right in front of me, exactly what is this. So I I set them up with that question, it's like a koan, well it is a koan, this, this person is a koan. Uh, what what is this person? And it's a it's a not unanswerable question, but the inquiry is, people come back, people want this, people want to be met with this kind of acute awareness and listening, and recognition. It's recognition. Ah, oh, I see how it is for you. This is what they were looking for. I, you don't, we don't really want people to fix us, do you? I mean, you ask for advice, but you don't really want to take it. Uh, and this is the same for, I think, everybody. Actually, all we really want is to be got. And then we can move on. It's like that we keep making this communication. It's not being heard. So we keep at it. And whether that comes up as stomach problems or headaches, whatever, being got is crucial. You know, I hear you use this phrase, I see how it is for you. Mm-hmm. I just wrote it down here because I do not want to forget that. Not that I would forget it because I hear you say it and I go, that's right. I mean, I just feel it in myself. I feel it in myself because I can think of the times when somebody has just simply seen me. They're not trying to change anything. They're not trying to do anything. They're simply noticing. Oh, this is you. Here you are. 
And I know how that feels. That's just like falling in love, right? Here's the other thing for me. I think about in clinic when I'm working with people. I, I spoke with someone else about this recently, about how I'm not that good of a diagnostician, right? You're supposed to be really good with diagnosing in Chinese medicine, right? Like scholar traditions and like look at a tongue, feel a pulse, ask a few questions and, you know, like nail it, know what it is, know who someone is. And I've never been that good at it. I just, for whatever reason, I can like talk myself into any diagnosis if I think, you know, it'll fit. Oh, I think they're this. And, and I see all the signs that point to that. Now I feel good about like what I'm going to do because everything fits in my mind. But is that actually helpful? And a lot of times it's not. That's what I found over the years. And so over time, I found that for me to be of any help to people, I have to wait for them to tell me what they need. And I don't get that until I can sit in that place of, oh, I see how it is for you. I mean, it's really helpful hearing you say that because I haven't, I haven't had a way of like putting words to this process of mine. And, but it's, it is this, when I can be in that place of, oh, I see how it is for you. And I get this response back from them that's like, yes, now something can happen. Yeah, it's a nice moment of human contact. Yeah, it works as well. But if we try and make it work, it doesn't work. Well, yeah, it's, it, life is funny that way, isn't it? Yeah, we can't technique it. We can't technique, we can't technique it, technique no. people. Well, I mean, here's the funny thing about technique. You can technique certain things. You can technique to a certain degree. Yeah. But you can't technique what we're just talking about. No, and, and I, I suppose for me, I was just about to actually disagree. <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah, I, of course I see the value of techniques, uh, I, I, I guess. <laughs> but, but what we're looking for in Seiki is the technique come fresh, coming from the person. This technique wants to manifest, mm. never to do it to the person. And this is a very different feeling because we don't have this diagnostic idea in uh, Seiki. And, and in fact, it, it shouldn't really be them, Shiatsu, that the diagnosis, uh, this um, simultaneous diagnosis treatment is, I want to know about this life situation. I want to know. But as soon as some resolution comes, ah, I see, this is now finished. So we don't then go on and do something with that diagnosis because the emergence of it is a point of change. So, ah, I recognize this. I move on. So it's a very different, very different from the medical model. Yes. Well, this is, um, how do I say it? I, when I was in school, I was very attracted to a lot of the Japanese acupuncture that was being taught. And it was because, I think it was because, number one, there was a lot of hands-on and there was this constant sense of inquiry. What is this mm -hmm. now? What is this now? Where is this now? 
who are they now? Who am I now? Where are we now? Yeah, I, I think it is a particularly Japanese sort of approach. The idea of practice alone, something comes from the practice itself. We're not practicing for something. The practice is it. And so when I'm inquiring, that's it. We don't have to do anything on top of that. It's not inquiry uh somehow then for for an application for treatment yeah i think this is how personally i would think this but this is where i think we have to go uh, this you know, medicine's great for fixing bones we 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 benefit a lot from it but we want to be people we want to be human we want to connect i think people need help with this and perhaps more and more i would agree that we need help with that more and more and uh you know, in some ways, it's it, it's such a funny world, the way things go. We've got all this uh, social media, which ostensibly is about connection. It, it gives, I don't know if it's right to say the illusion of connection, but it, it it's like it has a promise of connection, but it just doesn't completely deliver. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. It's both one thing and the other, isn't it? I mean, we are connecting. I feel connected. This is good. Uh, I wouldn't be doing this without um, the computer, this great distance between us. And I've had some fabulous connections during this few months of not really going out much and really felt very connected with people all around the world. And yet we've, we're missing craft. We're missing this touch, this uh, analog <laughs> connection as well. Yeah, I am totally analog. I mean, one of the reasons I love the work I do is because I'm so damn analog. And, and I'm also digital. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of bilingual, I guess. You could say I, I too, in this time, have appreciated uh, the, the ways of digitally connecting and, and that it's been available to us. At the same time, I recently started seeing some patients, just taking it very slow, Having not been sitting with people, sort of face-to-face, heart-to-heart, biofield-to-biofield, however you want to describe it, and then to do it after not having done it for a few months, it's delicious. (laughs) (laughs) And there really is something about being in the presence of another human being. And I've had that idea in my mind that there's that, but to not have it for a period of time and then to get a taste of it again. I mean, in some ways I feel very fortunate that we've had this situation with the coronavirus that's taken us apart from each other because coming back together again, I'm starting to notice things that have always been there, but I have not been aware of them. Yes. I can agree with you on that. A lot, a lot of my colleagues have, in the world of shiatsu have been doing remote sessions. I mean, partly uh, as a matter of survival, but they, they've been finding a huge value in this. And I had a few sessions from uh, somebody who works with me in Athens, in Greece, actually. And it, it was lovely. Uh, but I haven't felt attracted to doing this myself, which I find interesting in and of itself. In fact, why? Why? Uh, because my line is always, well, you're, t- you're using your hand, but it's not your hand. You're connecting. It's something else. This is not about the body. So why, why do I feel this resistant to do 
distance sessions which I do uh, I don't know I still don't know the answer to that but there is something about this presence which I want which says to me what the work is what my work is I suspect you often say to yourself I still don't know the answer to that yeah <laughs> I don't feel I know the answers I think the, the, the time I know the answers or maybe the time I stop doing this entirely and go and do something else because it's a constant query. The work is it's scary, frankly, because I never know. I never know what's going to happen when I sit down with somebody at a workshop or private practice. I simply don't know. It has to be that way. So that is a little dangerous if you don't know the answer. And especially if someone's coming to you because they're, they want something or they want to get rid of something and they think you have the answer and you know you don't, ooh, that's an interesting dynamic. Isn't it? I think so. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had enough failures in the work I do to know I don't have the answers. And even when people get better, it's a big mistake if I take credit for it. Oh, yes. And it's a big mistake if I leave out the part that I did have a part in. Yeah, but you always know what it is, your part. Generally speaking, no, it's usually a surprise. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if your clients know which bit was you. What do you mean? Well, I wonder if, the, if, if one asks them, you know, what, okay, so you're better. How did I help? Where, what was my part in that? Perhaps I should start asking them. You know, often, often they'll say things to me like, well, you know, I'm here for a, a headache now, but, you know, everything was going good after you took away my back pain. I hear things like that, and I, um, at this point, I will generally correct, yeah, I use the word correct them. In my mind, I say I correct them. And what I say is, well, actually, you're the one who the back pain disappeared in. You're the one who did that. There's something in you that knows how to do that, or it couldn't have happened. It's very confusing for people to hear that. Yes. It's quite confusing for me sometimes. <laughs> But yes, I think I think it's something about opening the space. It's certainly got not not got anything to do with my ego, which is next to useless in this work. Um, <laughs> well, it's good at writing advertising copy. Well, just about. It's not even that hot at that, to be honest. I just had to put it aside. <laughs> it's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'd like I'd like them all to think it was all me, of course, but um, it's not. I don't know. I don't know what's who's doing it. But they are happy. They do come back. My clients have to say, I, I don't know whether I've just got them quite well trained, don't seem to trouble themselves too much about anything esoteric. <laughs> or they don't even, I seem to have some of them so well trained, they don't even particularly tell me how they are. They just come in and lie, lie down and go away again. <laughs> so, you know, this thing about knowing, I, I want to I circle back on this. Um, this thing about knowing and this thing about diagnosis. All right. Because, you know, and again, as a practitioner, I think it's, it's been helpful for me to have an idea of what's going on with someone. You know, we generally call that a diagnosis. We've been taught to call that a diagnosis. These days, I think of it more as a hypothesis because I love the scientific method. I think it's fabulous. It's a great way to find out, you know, what my biases and, you know, wishful thinking is about. You know, you just throw a little scientific method on it. You know, you're going to sort that stuff out pretty quickly. So often these days I think of a diagnosis more like, well, this is my current working hypothesis. Let's see 
where this goes. Um, so there's a you know there's a place for that. But the thing that I found that's so curious is people come in and they'll say, well, you know, I have, and then they'll tell me their diagnosis. And, and they have put themselves in the box of that diagnosis. Or I'll also have people, and this to me is super curious, where they come in and there's something that's not right. How do we know it's not right? Because they don't feel right. They've been through all kinds of testing. They've seen all kinds of doctors. Nobody knows what's going on with them. And I've had people say to me, and I've heard this more than a few times, I've heard people say, I don't care if it's cancer, I just want to know what it is. And I think to myself, wow, what are we going to do with that? People have this intense desire to know what this thing is. Yes, I was just trying to think whether anyone's actually quite had come to me with that. It's probably slightly different from acupuncture. It's perceived slightly differently. But yes, they, they do. But I, what I really noticed, though, is that they kind of know. They kind of know what it is. But it's not necessarily... I mean, that, that's not everybody, but people often have an idea of what it is, really. And, but it's not something which they could tell a doctor a medical doctor, but they you have a feeling about it. And, and so if you can have a conversation about that and see what it is they think is going on, that can be very interesting and uh, give a little space to that and even acknowledge that <laughs> maybe things won't change. That can be an interesting one. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it's down to, again, really, and I don't, I'm by no means perfect at this, but really, really hearing people, really hearing what's going on for them seems to me something that just takes, I think I've nailed it. And then, you know, it, pride really always comes before a fall, you know, with this sort of sickening regularity. But it, it, I think I've nailed it and I never have. It's like there's always another layer of really hearing somebody or really noticing how it is when you put that, your hand on them. Uh, it's there's always more. There's always more. This, so there's, it seems to me there's something very satisfying, and maybe this is for the ego, but there's something very satisfying about having an answer. It's like, ah, great, that explains it. But answers don't seem to be that enlivening. It's like answer usually means, okay, stop. Whereas questions, it's a whole different kettle of fish. That's right. Yes, I hadn't thought about the answers thing. Answers are a bit flat, aren't they? A bit, oh, oh, is that all? Is that what it was? Something mundane. But yeah, the search, yeah, the search is where it's at. Well, I guess that's what I do. That's what I do. I'm, I'm a researcher. Kishi would always say that. He says, I'm, no, I'm just a researcher. I'm not a teacher. I'm a researcher. You know, just what is this? What is this life we're living? What is this particular life here? And the distortion uh, is something else. Is something else that we talk about. That this life situation is a kind of distortion. But also, we're not really setting out to even fix that, but just to clarify, clarify it, so that we're not not encumbered. I suppose not encumbered, so we can't live our lives. Tell me more about distortion. Uh, this. But it's not bad. I mean, distortion usually is pejorative. It usually comes with this idea it's something bad. But that's not how we mean it. It's like our human condition, uh, both on a 
macro but also a micro level our individual human condition is a distortion in you could say it's a distortion in the field you know the, and you can of course feel it at a body level emotionally it's twisted body or uh, some energetic feeling of twist or blockage this is your particular distortion your life situation and Rio, we're working to recognize this distortion as it really is, to come to know it, to come to apprehend, and I, I would actually say appreciate it too. And I don't mean appreciate as in, you know, that's a that's a great uh, that's a great looking haircut. You know, it's 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 more it, it's like uh, aha, I really again I really mm -hmm. see really appreciate the quality of this the, the see twist. See how the, it is for you. It's yes. like this. Yes. Yes, it's like this. It's like this. And it's brought us to here. It's brought us two people to this point in time out of all the trillions of points that there could have been. Isn't that amazing? So these distort I love the idea of a distortion, especially as you're talking about it, as something that might be burdensome to us, but it's also kind of a gift. Does that yeah, make sense? I don't know if I call it. Well, yeah, it makes it makes sense, but I, I'm not sure I would quite call it a gift. I think it is burdensome. More often than not, it is our burden in life. But there is something sweet about it. Yeah, in a way, maybe that's what you mean by gift. There is something, this is just me. It's just how I have been. It's just the way it is here. It's just how I've got through life. Exactly. It's how I've gotten through life. And because I've gotten through life, there's something of value that it's had, that it's brought me here. It's bringing me some suffering, but it's also gotten me through to, to this moment. Maybe in this moment, I don't need it anymore. Or maybe I need more of it. Who knows? Yeah, it's kind of like an old friend, but you know what? We're dumb now. <laughs> so there's a poignancy almost. Maybe that's a Japanese sort of thought, but uh, a poignancy. In, in, in tea ceremony, in Japanese tea ceremony, you appreciate things. This is a very particular feeling. So at the end of the ceremony, you will appreciate the tea bowl and appreciate the utensils. And this is a... You pick them up very carefully and you look at them and you really take them in and it's got no you know it's, it's not really doing anything much except to just recognize and appreciate I think that, that that's been useful to me and it stops time we're not rushing to fix and we're not rushing to come to some uh, agreed end point where we're all perfectly healthy we're appreciating, we're taking our time here to appreciate where we've come to, where we're at. And that has, to me, a lot, a lot of value to it, the process. When you say end point, that we're not coming to some end point, it, it seems to me, when I think of medical model, when I think of the kind of life I've lived and what I've believed about health and medicine and all that, that there's this... There's this uh, I'm not going to use the word perfect, but there's a state that's considered healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, when people are trying to get to it, all you got to do is look on the internet and there's all kinds of ads and 
websites and methods and this and that to, you know, get you to that good place that you're not in, but don't worry, we're going to get you there. We're going to, we're going to get you better than you are. We're going to fix you up. And I, I look at that and I hold that for a moment. I can certainly live into that because I have lived into it. And Mm. then to hold that side by side with just appreciating the catastrophe of what life is and where it's brought us with all the, all the wonderful things it's brought us and all the challenges and difficulties and suffering that it's brought us and to hold those without too much comment about good or bad. Mm, mm, yeah. It's uh, pointless, really. <laughs> Is this good or bad? I don't know. But, but there's a lot of good and bad. People are always talking about good and bad. Um, and, and it seems it seems that just might be getting in the way of appreciation. Very much so, yes. And in fact, the medical, medical model... A poor medical model. I feel a bit sorry for it. I'm doing it down badly, but it, it sort of depends on this idea of there is good and that there is bad. But but actually, it was, it was Ram Das who, who said something like this is many many years ago. Something about um, you know meeting people, but you don't have to be a full time cancer patient, do you? You don't have to go professional on it. You, you can you can be you're you, and you're a cancer patient. So, so what, what is health there? You know, maybe you're really healthy. <laughs> You've got cancer, but you're, you're actually really healthy as well. There's you, and it's not all bad. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. This is really, really true. This is so true. You don't have to be a full-time cancer patient. I had the great good fortune when I first started practicing. I'd just gotten out of school. And... Um, a person that I used to work with, her father had just received a diagnosis of lung cancer. They opened him up, they looked around, they went, yep, okay, go home, you got six months. And so he started to come see me. She got him to come see me. And I'm so glad we're having this conversation. It's like, wow, look, 22 years later, now I'm starting to understand (laughs) what's going on and why it was that every time he came into my clinic and he left, the place was brighter. Mm, yes. And it's because he was not a full-time cancer patient. It's like he had cancer, yeah. but he wasn't a full-time cancer patient. He, he, there was this other thing. I'm not even going to attempt 
to put words to it other than to say it is helpful and descriptive to say he was not a full-time cancer patient. He <laughs> did not live for six months. He lived for two years. Oh, wow. And I had the good fortune mm. to know him in that time. And my suspicion is this exactly this. He had cancer, but he wasn't cancer. Yeah. Yeah, this is crucial. This is crucial. We do go professional on all sorts of things. We go professional on our neurotic stuff as well. It's like how to unfix ourselves from these fixed ideas. We have to unfix ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, I mean, this is the task of life, isn't it? I mean, we're, this is not just, uh, it's not just about going for a session. Yeah, it's how to unfix it, how to live, spont we're back to spontaneity, well, I'm back to spontaneity, yeah, uh, to reintroduce, to find our spontaneity and our, our original movement in life. What kind of practices do you have that help you to remind yourself of that? Well, psyche for me is a practice that's my main is that quite true uh, yeah, yes it is my main practice I will say I also do something called mind clearing which um, is a whole other story which has really the same philosophical foundations but it's kind of talking based so I do that too which I find very helpful so Seiki is kind of an embodied being practice and and mind clearing is a is it like a more mental practice? I'm trying to I'm trying to get my sensibilities around this. Yeah, I'm tr I'm trying to bring them together. Uh, they're really both whole person, but one is, I mean, I think with the mind clearing, sometimes it certainly was the case for me, and I see this with a number of my students. Sometimes it's necessary for us or useful to us to actually look at the attitudes we're carrying around with us that are getting in the way, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bad person, I don't deserve anything, whatever it might be, you know, I'm better than everyone, whatever, whatever's holding us up in life. And I think sometimes tackling that at a um, speaking level, at an ideas and meaning level, that's what I mean to say, meaning level, has certainly been extremely valuable to me. Um, and so there's increasing crossover of people coming to mind clearing from Seiki, um, so, and Seiki is experiential. I mean, I think my suspicion is that Seiki is dealing at such a depth level of the distortion. Uh, it's very profound work. Um, but I also do Katsugan, which is a spontaneous, spontaneous work, which is very important, very important practice. Say that again. What is it? The Katsugan uh, from the from Seitai. It's a, a man called Noguchi. In the mid twenty, well, early twentieth century, actually, there was this great movement to bring back traditional Japanese ways in Japan. And this, I mean, at much the same time as uh, shiatsu started becoming popular. In fact, this katsugan, this uh, original movement, resensitizing yourself, uh, getting out of your box, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. So you're 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 surrendering to natural movement. Yeah, so so that that that's a, pr a separate practice which which I like very much. It sounds to me like a big part of the practice that you have in working with people centers around surrender. Mhm. Mm yes. The discipline of surrender rather than a floppy approach to not doing anything. It's not it's not not doing anything. It's surrender, which is quite different. 
So I've had it go through my mind at times. This little phrase will go through my mind. Um, and, and I'll think to myself, I'm not giving up, I'm giving in. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Yes, there is something. It's not giving up. It's certainly not giving up. It's the opposite it's the of opposite not giving of not, up. It's the opposite of not giving up. Yeah. But, it, but there is this surrender. It, and it doesn't mean I don't care. And it doesn't mean I'm walking away. It's the opposite of that. Quite the reverse. Yes. But it's quite hard to f- put into words or explain. It's, it's, it's like, what's really going on? Yeah. And it's about sort of expanding and letting it be. A little bit while not leaving the room, while keeping your attention, you're you're not you're not going anywhere. It's fully present, but just here. Well, there's a famous song with that name, right? Let it be. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. It was funny. I, I can remember as a younger person, the like when I first heard that song, it it made zero sense to me. It was like, what are they? What? And then you go a little longer in life, and it's like, oh, my gosh. There yeah. it is. Yeah, stop, stop messing with it. Stop pestering it. So here we are. You know, I, I just love the contradictions that go with this. That on one hand, we're here to do something, and we're here to help and to be of service. And yet that comes through listening, surrender, and... Some kind of a, uh, I don't even know what the word is, um, allowing process that, you know, gives rise to some kind of ripening that allows us to see, oh, this is what it is for you. Yes. Without judgment, just like, there it is. Here we are. It sounds so easy. And it's so difficult. It's so difficult. (laughs) I mean, this is like meditation, right? Meditation is very simple. Super simple, not easy. No, no so difficult. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is like that. I don't see, other, I, for me personally, I, I, I have no other choice. This is what's satisfying. This waiting for the present to appear. This, uh, this present moment to expand. Okay. This, I hear you say this. I don't have words for it. There's just a part of me that, that, that just kind of rings this sense of, yes, that's right. I've got a question about intuition and, and being intuitive. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I often hear, and intention. I'm going to bring this into the conversation yes. as well, because yes. I often hear people say, well, you know, our medicine's all about intention and what our intention is. And, and every time I hear that, I get nervous because it, that feels, sometimes I think that's laziness. Sometimes I think that's wishful thinking. Sometimes I just don't know what the hell people are talking about. Because when, when I hear like, well, you know, my intention is for them to heal and their back is going to get better. Well, what if their healing doesn't include their back getting better? So I'd love to get your take on intention. Yes. I often asked question. Mm. In Shiatsu, there's a lot of intention going on. Sort of, a lot of that's taught. But for uh, in Seiki, 
I intend I intend to understand this person, this individual. That is my intention. And I intend to be open to this individual and how it is for them. And that that's a very strong discipline. But it's not directing anybody to be a certain way, I hope. But then the, the exploration, you, you, of course, uncover your own um, <laughs> hidden agendas and uh, this sort of stuff. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, that's the intention. And uh, I mean, you, you mentioned intuition as well, which I think is <laughs> an interesting topic. And, and I, I don't think it is intuition. I think you're, you're, you're actually seeing, you're at, we're calling it intuition. Well, okay, I'm going off piste a bit here, maybe for not quite sure if, where I'm going with this, but we call it intuition because it's, I suspect, because it's not quite legitimate or we don't think it is. But actually, I think we, we, we know other stuff. We see other stuff. And so for me, it's, it may start like intuition, but it ends Actually, you know, I see that. It's not my intuition. I'm not guessing. I see that. Something to bring in and include and inquire with. Yeah, I see that. Now, what is, now mm. what is that? Be open to that. I, this is really helpful. Thank you. Um, I, I think I've got something to chew on here. It's like, okay, so what is my intention Verse not verse, but it's like, how can I have a clean intention and like separate that from my agenda? Mm. Oh, yeah. That, that seems like a worthwhile inquiry to bring into my, to my clinical work. Just, just, you know, just invite it into the room. See, mm. see what shows up. Yeah. <laughs> I've been just know what yeah, happens. Yeah, I can keep you posted. Um, Holy smokes. I, I can't believe an hour's gone by already. I feel like we just sat down and started drinking a cup of tea. Yes, it's been a real pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Maybe maybe you'll come back sometime and we can talk more about this stuff. No, right? I'd like to. All right. Anything else that you have to say? Anything that feels like it wants to be said uh, before we wind it down for today? I just feel like I need to come up with some marvelous thing to say, but I, I'm not sure I do really. I love the work. It's the most, it's been this lockdown. It's been quite a pleasant break from seeing people. <laughs> but It has, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It's, it's been really quite restful. Thank you for naming that. That's helpful. I have too. It's kind of tiring sometimes, but um, but I love it. And there's nothing better than just that quiet, un unassuming connection with people which is seems to me both absolutely ordinary and ap uh, gold and like gold deeply nourishing isn't it alice thanks so much for this today thank you thank you very much thanks as always for listening if you liked this conversation if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight share the episode with your friends if you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.